morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn to the table of contents. And there, look for the prophet Nahum. We are in Nahum chapter 1. I don't know why all pastors don't preach from Nahum on Resurrection Sunday. (laughs) Nahum chapter 1. We'll take verses 1 through 3 in a moment. This morning's text is entitled, The Downfall of the Soul. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and Yahweh avenges. Yahweh avenges and is furious. Yahweh will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Yahweh has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Please be seated. Now, you might be a little intimidated by that. The wicked, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the text is verse 3, and only a portion of it. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The wicked here that Nahum is referring to are not common sinners. We are all sinners. These are abject sinners in unrestrained rebellion against God, and in this case, of course, Yahweh. And It's important to point that out because if you just read it that the Lord is going to take vengeance upon the wicked, the sinners, then we're all without hope. That is not what's intended. God did not give us the scripture to skim over. And these lesser known books of the Bible are every bit as much of God's word as the more popular books of the Bible. These unused sections of Scripture are so, they are unused or passed over often because God's perfection is not realized there. You may come to the book of Nahum and you just don't see it. You're not blessed by it. If you take, for instance, the artwork of Vermeer, Johannes Vermeer, whose artwork I like very much, it requires education to really appreciate, in the eyes of the beholder, just what, is, what they're looking at. With Vermeer, his, the way he handles light and the colors, if you look at his painting of the geographer, for instance, how the sunlight comes into the room, well, if you just look at the painting and you're, you're not told what you're looking at, you may just see, oh, look at that, a piece of artwork. The guy can really draw. And then someone comes up and says, yes, but look at this. What makes it so special is... You can't do it, and hardly anybody else can do it. Then you begin to appreciate what you're looking at. And so God has given to the church teachers to do this very thing, to take a book like Nahum and say, let me tell you what you're looking at in case you've missed it. Learning, 
Learning the word of God allows us to reflect Christ as moonlight reflects the sunlight. Driving in this morning, there was a full moon. And it was very bright, of course. The moon has no light of itself. That light is a reflection of the sunlight. And this should speak of the Christian life. I find this inspiring. I find it inspiring that I can learn God's word and that I can reflect God's word. Or am I too quick to absorb light and sluggish when it comes to reflecting light? I mean, some people wonder why no one likes them, why they have no friends. There's a reason for that, usually. And maybe it is because they are doing more of the absorption than the reflecting. A black hole does not let light out, it said. The gravity is too intense. Well, I don't want to be that way, and I want to learn about these things, and I want to do something with them for God, because God wants to pour into all of us so he can pour out from us. That's true of every believer. I would even say that's true of every human being. If God could just get his hands on their soul, if he could fill them, he could use them. This morning, um, as we consider these things, going a little deeper by just taking on the prophet, and we haven't even begun to open up the prophecies of Nahum. Uh, we will, of course, in a moment. But we want to go below the surface or beneath the surface and not just take the meanings that are on top in the scripture. For a child, in the story of Jonah, the fish is the big deal. But for the adults, they go deeper. It's those lost souls that Jonah was sent to. That's the big deal with the book of Jonah. And so I hope to go beyond the obvious with the meanings of Nahum. Because they're right on the surface. They're right on the surface. God's judgment. God's verdict. God is vindicated from his judgment. But there's, again, so much more to this book and its meaning and its application as there is with all books in the Bible. And so I hope we go beyond, again, the obvious meanings in this prophet's writings. Speaking of Jonah, Nahum forms the sequel to the book of Jonah. A hundred years, over a hundred years, separate the two prophets. Both of them were sent to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh belonged to the Assyrians. When Jonah went there, the Assyrians were not yet the vicious people they would become. They were now very vicious, very cruel. They would skin their victims and hang their skins over the wall. They would do all sorts of things. They were just mean. And they were very wealthy from all of the loot that they had acquired from the people that they had conquered. Nahum goes through that as he details why the judgment is going to be upon them. But at this point in their history, Assyria was at the height of her power. She recovered from that incident at Jerusalem where God had taken out over 180,000 of them. That in Isaiah 37. Now she's strong again. No one liked Nineveh except the Ninevites. And by this time in her history, she had no friends in heaven and no friends on earth. Nineveh had no regret or sorrow for their sin and their cruelty. They were just cruising right along this is the second time, as I said, that God has addressed Nineveh. That, In fact, with Jonah, God had gone out of his way to deal with Nineveh. God sends Jonahs and Nahums, if necessary, to nations and to individuals as well. 
particularly to the individuals. And that's when the book becomes a little bit more real to me, when I remember that God deals with individuals. Individuals will impact society. Alexander McLaren, an old Scottish preacher, said, the message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondary to society. It leaves the individuals whom it has influenced to influence the mass. In other words, to influence the society, the numbers of people. The word of God comes to individuals, and those individuals ought to reflect the Christ that they have encountered in the scriptures and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they are to go out into the world and make disciples. It's very basic. For Nineveh, in the end, it was as if the prophet Jonah had never been there. How tragic. Subsequent generations were lost forever. Why? Because they received the light, and then those Subsequent generations abandoned it. This awful tendency, talked about it somewhat Sunday, uh, Wednesday, where we saw David the king loving the Lord, Solomon upholding the kingdom, and then the third generation of Rehoboam moving away from God. One generation fights for their faith, the next assumes it, and the third abandons it. This is a pattern. It's not absolute, but it does exist. And the question is, you who have devout grandparents, are you listening to this? Because if the grandparents love the Lord, and your parents love the Lord, are you going to be that generation that departs from the Lord, or are you going to continue it? And raise your children to understand as much. Nahum, the prophet here, speaks of the vengeance of God. He wrote to the benefit of his people, the Jews. Unlike Jonah, we have no indication that Nahum was dispatched to Nineveh itself. He clearly addresses the question that the Jews would have been asking, because at this time, the Jewish people were suffering raids from the Assyrians. Ultimately, the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom and take it away. He answers the questions, why does God allow cruel Nineveh to continue? And this is what his prophecy deals with. It is a burden on Nineveh, not a blessing. So if you look at verse 1, it says the burden against Nineveh. And everything that follows is about Nineveh and their wickedness. Well, what does that have to do with the individual? Well, if that individual is wicked, if that individual is in the eyes of God an opponent to God, then they are, too, lined up for the vengeance of God. This is very serious stuff. The gospel is good news, but it does not come without bad news. When there was no cloud in the Assyrian sky, metaphorically, when there was no cloud on their horizon, Nahum was called to preach its downfall. It's not the city, it's the souls in the city. It is the downfall of the city because of the downfall of the souls. It matters. It matters what you believe, it matters what you think. You may say, nobody cares what I think. Oh yeah, God does. Every idle word is registered by God. Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh has been so completely fulfilled. As you read his three chapters, it's so completely that armies have marched over the city of Nineveh, unaware of the existence of its ruins beneath their feet. That's how thorough 
That's how thorough the prophecies were fulfilled. There is something radically wrong with God if he does not judge sin. And I don't know why people don't get that. Because we as individuals, we are incensed when a wrong has been committed against us and no one deals with it. We say there is no justice. Well, God says, well, yeah, there is. There is justice. And we'll get to why it takes a long time for God to execute justice in a moment. Well, in a good moment. But as we look at this, Chapter 1, there is the verdict of vengeance. Chapter 2, there's the vision of vengeance. Because it was a vision. A vision. He could see what was going to happen. He named it. He said the flood waters will come in and breach the city. And that is precisely what happened to Nineveh. The Euphrates overflowed, the Tigris River, and the waters came in and those sun-baked bricks were just dissolved. In chapter 3, he speaks of the vindication of vengeance. In other words, God is justified in his wrath. There's a good reason for this. We'll get to the part about salvation, don't worry. (laughs) Every good person sometimes prophesies just like Nahum. At some point, a righteous person looks for judgment against the wickedness and the evil that is found on earth. Why? Because in the Christian, God's love is in them. Because we hate and we despise cruelty and inhumanity and evil. And this is what he was facing, the prophet, in his day. These Assyrians were a constant threat to the righteous people of God and the unrighteous people too. They were a threat to everyone. Such prophecies of God, his vengeance are always justifiable. God is never wrong, period. Whether he is showing kindness or whether he is judging, he is always right. This is fundamental to Christianity. Be it in prophecy retrospect or prophecy in pro, uh, that is uh, in prospect. So you have a retrospect, that's the book of Naaman. In retrospect, we see it fulfilled. It's all done. There is no more Nineveh. You won't catch a flight to Nineveh. In prospect, it is the Great Tribulation. That's one. It will be fulfilled. As God's mercy was given to Nineveh when they repented, God's vengeance was given to their impenitent ancestors. We would say it cuts both ways. These are stark warnings. They remain lessons for future generations, and that would include us, and these are the kind of things we should be preaching to people. It's nothing wrong to open up your Bible and preach from Nineveh to someone who has no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever because you're the one that's going to point out to them where the light is coming in, where the colors come from, that no one else can do this except God, like the Vermeer uh, analogy that I used at the beginning. The prophets, they wrote and they spoke with astounding certainty, astounding. When they said something, it was like, this is going to happen. And many of their prophecies, they did not live to see. They didn't even live to see them beginning to be fulfilled. But they were sure they were going to happen because God had given them the vision. God had given them the faith. And he does the same to us. He gives us what we need to be certain about the witness of Jesus Christ that we have observed. Jesus still points to Naaman's, Naaman's prophecies. He does, it not, he does it indirectly. 
It was Jesus who beheld the city and wept over it. And while his tears were still on his face, he pronounced Jerusalem's doom. He says it this way in Matthew 23. See, your house is left to you desolate. It's a judgment. He could see it coming because of them. Always God offers mercy before he pronounces judgment. That's why a book like Nahum is so important. It's like, where's this judgment coming from? What's going to happen to me? I am a sinner. I need mercy. I need God to forgive me. Why didn't the Ninevites get it? They didn't come for it. Well, not this generation. The others, they were, the precedent was if they would just repent in sackcloth and ashes, God would forgive them. I'm not talking about the Christian who struggles with sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. I'm talking about a lost world that is depending on us and doesn't even know it. Jesus said this, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. This is Jesus speaking. There's a lamentation in his judgment. But it is a judgment nonetheless. And he's saying to the New Testament church, don't misunderstand. I want to save, but there is a judgment. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. It's such a train wreck, these religious people that he was talking about here, that no one can get to heaven because of them. Matthew 23, 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. And for pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So don't say the book of Nahum has no relevance. All scripture is God-breathed. All of it is relevant. And if you don't see it, it's because it just hasn't been pointed out to you yet. Doesn't mean you can't see it. How obnoxious we would all be if, if you could be like me. It's <laughs> a joke. How obnoxious would we all be if we just knew everything? Who likes a know-it-all? Raise your hand. <laughs> so, within Nahum's words... Again, the lamentations of Jesus Christ. Jonah was sent to convict sinners to repent because of the value of the soul to God. Because Jonah had no value for their soul. Nahum was sent to condemn sinners for impenitence. That is the downfall of the soul without God. These are the things we need to learn to preach. I, I, I learned in my days, early days as a Christian, sharing the gospel... That when I spoke about things of God from sections of the scripture that were totally foreign to the people I was speaking to, I held their attention better. If I just went to God so loves the world that he gave us, hey, so familiar, I don't, you know, that's over their heads. In one but when I took a book like Nahum, I keep saying Naaman, like Nahum, or any of the other books of the Bible that are relatively obscure, arcane, I'd hold their attention because I would teach them what these things were meaning. 
with what God has to say about sin and wrath in our Bibles, none should ignore it. If God doesn't, we should not. Still, here is some Christian that will come along because they think this way, unfortunately. And it's never mind what you have to make me holy, Pastor. What do you have to make me happy? What do you have for my teens? What do you, here, here's my, you know, child, fix them. John Wesley said it this way about churchgoers in his day, and he was in the late 1700s. They came to church to enjoy religion instead of to learn how they could become holy. Well, I don't feel like as I pastor this church, I have this issue, but I know it exists. I know firsthand that it exists. I know that there are other churches that are this way. And I don't say this to condemn them. It's not necessary. It's But pointing it out has value. That kind of thinking is not taking Christianity seriously. When you come to God's house only for yourself and not for him, something's not right. I mean, again, we have our seasons. Sanctification. That is the the development of the Christian. I mean, there are two elements to sanctification. There's when you are justified and your sin is taken away. You are set aside by God. You are sanctified. You become a saint. When Paul wrote to the saints, they were all living. To the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Colossae, to the saints at Rome. They were not voted on. They were those who had come to Jesus Christ. They were separated. They were sanctified. But the second phase of sanctification is the development of the Christian walk. Ephesians 17 gets right of chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, gets right into this. It takes work to develop as a Christian. It takes work to face the flesh, the sinful nature that you're born with. And it takes constant work. It is by the sweat of your brow that you will enter into heaven to hear the Lord say, well done. John the Baptist, uh, well, Jesus said, and the righteous are pressing in. We are pressing in. It is work. And if you think Christianity is not work, you haven't tried it. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of God. We all know that as believers. Unbelievers don't know this. And if they do, why are they still unbelievers? Because they don't believe it. Why do they not believe it? Well, that is a million-dollar question. God's message to forgive or to damn is wrapped up in his mercy. No question about, about it. Mercy does not mean that the recipient has gotten away with their sin. It's the opposite. Mercy means you've been busted. You have been caught. And strength is being withheld. Judgment is being held back. God's mercy is lightning fast. When he shows it, it is instant. His condemnation, though, it plods along very slowly. And this is why Nineveh was getting away with murder for the seasons that belonged to them before their judgment. I want to say that again because it is critical to understanding the heart of God in a cursed world, a critical element. God's mercy is lightning fast. When you repent, your salvation is instant. But for those who have not repented, the condemnation comes slowly. Luke's gospel, this is illustrated in the 13th chapter in verse 6. 
He also spoke this parable. Jesus is now giving this parable. And a parable is a parallel. It is a great truth in the story that runs right next to life. And he says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? That's me. That's what I would say. Cut that thing down. It's wasting. I put something better there. Here comes the reply. But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. You see the slow response to judgment, the keeper of the vineyard. Let's not rush to cut it down. Let's give it a chance. For the hard-hearted, whatever mercy they may receive is temporary. Why? Why is it temporary? Well, it's only temporary if they don't come to God. But why still? It's space to repent. God is giving them time. He does this even with those who are in the church that are abhorrent. And there are, are churches where people are abhorrent by reason of their occult practices, by reason of their disregard for Scripture in Christ. Revelation 2.21, to the church at Thyatira, this is precisely what was, is, we're taught. And, he, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. There again is the sluggish movement of God towards judgment, the delay. See, that's what we, our text is, Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. That is our theology. Meekness, as Christians, does not mean weakness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness means you are strong enough to withhold your strength when it needs to be withheld. That's the definition of meekness. Of course, we, we get it from Christ when we exercise it. His mercy is strength held in reserve. If you say to somebody, I'll play a game of basketball with you, but I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to tie one hand behind my back. I do that to NBA players to get them stronger at their game. God can forgive, but he never ignores. He never misses anything. For one lifetime, God is ready to forgive. Again, this, some people think they're so rotten, God can't forgive them. How, what happens then? Well, that's up to us to cut through that stuff, to try to find a way to cut through it. If God can use us, sometimes God can't use us on a particular person. It's for somebody else. We, relationships, that's how they are sometimes. Maybe, maybe you can't, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can't preach to a family member. Just too much history, too much baggage there. Don't think that that is, you know, your objective in life to overcome that situation with that person. Start praying that God would send somebody else who will slap them upside their head a few times on your behalf, too. <laughs> when mercy is loved, it is because the soul is in harmony with God. When we love mercy, not only receiving it, it's so easy to love to receive mercy. Thank you. Thank you very much. What about being the one that is thanked? What about the one that says, I'm not ignoring the wrong. I'm forgiving it. 
To forgive is to pay. You have to pay to forgive. It costs something. Some, especially, I mean, when you forgive a debt, you've lost the money, if it's a debt of money. If it is a debt of feelings, which is harder to forgive. Once your feelings have been hurt, oh, brother, once there have been tears, you've heard me say this so many times from the pulpit. I've never come across it so much in my life till I became a pastor amongst Christians who once they get their feelings hurt, you're done. Not all of them. There are some champions that have had their feelings hurt and have overcome it, and they are strong, and it is a blessing. And it's humbling, and it's challenging, because it makes you say, I want to be like that too when my feelings are hurt. But I don't give anybody a reason to hurt my feelings. (laughs) You don't have to give somebody a reason to hurt your feelings. The curse of sin is on the earth, and it hunts all of us. But we are not defenseless. As... I said, mercy. When mercy is loved by an individual, it is because the soul is in harmony with the compassions of God because the soul knows God. And this is the parable in Matthew 18 where Jesus uh, forgave the debt and then found out that that person who was forgiven this huge debt grabbed somebody who owed him a tiny debt by the throat. And we are to pay attention to these lessons. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That is a soul's death sentence. That is the downfall of the soul. To refuse mercy. To refuse to show mercy. Now, there are times where there's no more mercy. Thus, the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The burden against Nineveh. There was no more mercy coming their way. Now it was judgment. Mercy comes or concerns itself, I should say. Mercy concerns itself with past events. And grace concerns itself with future events. I forgive what was done. But going forward, let's do this. And there's some gift. There's some kindness. The Hebrew word used most frequently in the Old Testament for mercy is really, it's a great word. It has in it the idea of stooping down, of bending, of lowering yourself to serve. There is an activity of love created in that word. Uh, You know, when I talk to the little children that come out, I try to stoop down a little bit so they're not looking up in awe at me, as you all should be. I like to get down a little bit closer to them, make them feel a little bit more comfortable. It seems to have worked over the years. I haven't received any monetary uh, gifts from it yet, but there's time. Anyway, this is the God. Uh, Hosea talks about this. But then comes Christianity. Uh, that is the Christ that I spoke about, still pointing to the truths in the book of Nahum. But then comes Christianity. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, of all that Jesus both began to do and to teach, that's us, that's the book of Acts, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, it it has a dual meaning to it. There are those things that he did, that he continued to do with the church, then there are the things that he has done to continue the church, to fill it with his spirit. Christianity is Christ, and he... He was ever ready at all times to tell the truth about God so men could be free. And we are to do the same thing. We are to be ever ready to do this. 
If you think being ever ready is just willing to do it, wanting to do it, then you like the idea of discipleship without entering into the idea, the ideal of, of discipleship. And that's hard work, to be ready. I mean, imagine, imagine going to war and, oh, I'm going to load my gun once the shooting starts. You're not going to last. You've got to go in ready. You have to go in trained. You have to know the word of God well enough to default to your training and not your feelings. And if you can do that, you're going to be more effective. If you just know the Lord, God is not calling us to be theologians. He's calling us to be witnesses. But we have to know what we've seen and we have to know what we're looking at. And we have to be able to some degree to at least share that much. That's what saves souls. And it does it so often without people even knowing it. There are some of you have led some people to Christ. And you don't even know that's exactly what's happening, maybe. Maybe you do know full well. The church of God is the instrument in the world that reveals God. Because the world will never stumble into truth concerning God without the church. Whenever this attitude of God towards cities or men is applied, there are results. Jesus said, you know, sometimes, though, you need to knock the dust off your shoes and move on. Stop wasting your time there. Stop casting pearl before swine. And you need to be led to fields that you can sow seeds and have fruit. And this is the attitude of the church. The church is never aloof when it comes to the souls of individuals. Never do we distance ourselves. This was the problem of ancient Israel, the problem with Judah, the problem with Jonah. They distanced themselves from those who were in need of what they had to say. That's why God went and fetched Jonah from the fish. But the church will not be dictated to. Nor should the Christian be dictated to when it comes to what we believe out of the scripture. Every day is Resurrection Sunday for the Christian. We don't have to wait until after the first full moon. Uh, well, the Sunday after the first full moon that, you know, Passover falls on the, on the full moon. And Christ was crucified at the Passover. And that Sunday that he rose again was the first Sunday after the full moon. So today is an accurate, it, it was a full moon this morning and last night. And today here we are uh, recognizing the resurrection of Christ, which should get more of an emphasis, far more of an emphasis than Christmas. And I don't know why, I don't know why the church is oftentimes missing this. But uh, again, every day is Resurrection Sunday for the Christ, Christian. And true Christianity does not disguise itself. Christianity has nothing to conceal. Everything to reveal as God leads, as God guides. Christianity never makes room for other religions to operate within Christianity. We have no chamber for things that are wrong about God. Well, you know, bring in a little bit of it and we'll sell your book or we'll let you teach that. We don't, we don't do that. Christianity does not leave room for Christians who disagree with Christ. You disagree with Christ? There's a big problem here now. If you're claiming to be a Christian, how can you do that? You said he is Lord. Or are you one of those that says, Lord, Lord, have we not? And then he says, get away from me. I never knew you. Boy, that's terrifying. That will be terrifying till I get into heaven. 
<laughs> reading that verse, I was, I'm skipping that. I cut it out of my Bible. I don't like it. <laughs> Christianity declares that other gods are not gods. They are not divine. This is how we make enemies. This is how we become persecuted. Well, it's worth it because of the value of the soul. Because the downfall of the soul is too tragic to be ignored. Christianity is not friendly to impersonations from hell. That's what's meant when I said that it declares other gods are false. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He says, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. He's getting this, of course, from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is just as relevant as the New. And as Christians, we are not to endorse ideas that disagree with the Scripture. This is one of the problems with so many books that come out that use Scripture, but really are not in harmony with the scriptures that they are using. They're just cherry-picking the verses. And if you're not, if you don't know what the real thing is, you're not going to be, identify the, to be able to identify the counterfeit. The downfall of the soul is the worst thing that can befall a human being. There's nothing worse than to be rejected by God in the end. This is not picking on those who contradict the Bible, they are picking on the Bible. Let's, let's keep this balanced here. If I want to uphold the scripture, I'm not picking on other people. If I want to point out that praying to Mary is a sin, I'm not picking on anybody. Line up with the scripture then. But don't, don't inject something into the scripture that's not there and call it God-given. And expect me to be a mute on the subject. Titus chapter 9. No, ch- pardon me. Chapter 1 verse 9. Paul said to Pastor Titus, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Oh, sorry, that verse expired. Did not. None of them do. Christians don't want their sin to be dominant in their lives, unfortunately. Sin wants to dominate. Sin wants to take over. We understand that. The fallen nature is rambunctious. We get it. We understand it. We need to be able to understand that when we're dealing with other Christians too. Otherwise, we become legalists. It's okay to learn the balance of grace. It's okay to exhibit grace. It's okay to not be insecure in your Christian walk. But the greater... The greater part of it all is the Spirit of God in us. Jesus wants me nonetheless, as he wanted Nineveh, as he wanted Jerusalem, as he reached out to Nineveh, as he reached out to Jerusalem, he reaches out to us. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing Where's the world going to hear that verse? Where are they going to get that? Hollyweird? Where is that going to come from? This is justification. When we come to Christ on his terms. Justification does not mean that God makes us righteous. Justification means that God has declared us righteous. Because of what Jesus has done. And if a Christian could live as they liked. We would live just like Jesus, there'd be no difference. 
if we had a choice. I would live as I ought. I would always be holy. That's what I would do if I could get rid of this old, this, this old man, the sinful nature. The greatest happiness of a Christian is to be holy, is to be right with God, is to not have darkness within us. But the fight goes on, and in the midst of that fight, we are to prevail. And Jesus makes possible what God requires, and God requires holiness. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unholiness, all sin. Sin is unholiness through the removal of the curse and the cross. It is finished. It is done. That's what he said. Now you've got to come and get it. The downfall of the soul is avoidable. And that's the message of Nahum. And so when you think about sharing the faith with people, you think about, hey, let me tell you about this book of Nahum. It is the wrath of God on sinners. Why? Why is it a whole book, the, the burden against Nineveh? Why is that? Is it because you think God is just this God of wrath? He's petty? Do you think he's just picked out who he likes and he's damning everybody else? Is, is that where, where did you get this stuff from? Because you didn't get it from the Bible. What you get from the Bible is I have loved you with an everlasting love. God is will, not willing that any should perish. That's what you get from the scripture. And so you get an opportunity to open that up and say, here's why. There is such a book of judgment on the Ninevites. And why it will be such a book of judgment on you. And you will have no one to blame. No one to blame but yourself when faced with the truth. I mean, anti Christian sentiment in this country is probably the highest it's ever been in this country. Why? Where is it coming from? What's the church's response? The church's response is not, oh, come to my church. The church's response is to preach the truth about Jesus Christ and let him take it from there. And so may we neither understate or overstate the wrath of God. Grace is balance. Balance according to God. And it's not that difficult to do. We are to tell it as we have it. Well, how do we have it? This morning's text. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Who are the wicked? We are to define these things for them. We are to show them where the light is and it's going to take work. A lazy Christian is not... A virtue, uh, uh, well, I'll put it this way. Laziness is not a virtue. It is a liability. And I know you've got life, you have many of you, you have children at home still, little children at home. You've got so much to do. You say, well, how can I do more in the word? Well, there are bookworms and there are tapeworms. So you can get yourself a tape or CDs now or listen online, but you can get the word of God. But make sure as you get the word of God that you digest it too. Don't just put layer atop of layer. Listen to sermon atop of sermon. You won't, listen, you know, if you read a lot, you forget what you read. Where did I get that from? If you read too much, you lose it all. It's all over the place. Unless you you take notes and you, you can track it down. And incidentally, those of you who take notes, the youth here especially, um, Ask the elder, older Christians, what's their problem? Why don't they take notes? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Do you ever go back and look at the notes? 
What's the purpose of taking them? If you don't go back and look at them. You see, that takes time. It means you have to sacrifice time doing something else that you want to do something you need to do because that's what you want more. Well, that's all I have to say about this. We are going to have communion because Jesus said concerning his death and his cross, this do in remembrance of me. And so let me close this session of our worship, the Lord and worshiping the Lord through the word before we worship through communion and song again. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we're always eager to learn more, to see more light. And when we have received a lot of light from you, we are also in need of being refreshed, revived, stirred up again, inspired to love, to forgive, to overcome, to not understate, to not overstate. We have so much work to do. May we not be afraid of it, but may we be aggressive in our faith, in our private time with you, in our prayer. We love and worship you because of you. If there's anyone that is here this morning and you've not opened your heart to Christ, again, you'll have no one to judge or to blame for your judgment but you. Why should you be invited to the throne of Christ a hundred times where there are those that have never been invited, where the word has never been preached? If you, as you've been listening, know that your guilt is on you, that you're just a sinner before God, you're born that way. Come and be cleansed from the judgment. Come and receive the Lord. Open your heart right now and make this prayer with me. Because only Satan and your sinful nature and the world against Christ, only they will block you making this confession. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. I thank you for dying on the cross in my place as me for my sins that I could benefit from your resurrection, from your mercy, from your forgiveness. And I come to you and I give you my life this day right here and right now. And I am unashamed to line up with the believers and say that I believe in Christ. And now, Father, if anyone has made this confession this morning to make you there, to receive you as their Lord and Savior, may they not hesitate to make it known. May they not be embarrassed by belonging to you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.